0: You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020.
1: This is a spectacular cell phone.
0: I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
1: And this is something that really, really puts this prosecution at risk. Given these entanglements
2: between Thomas and the broader MAGA movement, I think it's just not close in terms of whether his impartiality may reasonably be questioned by an impartial observer.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the over 65 days that Donald Trump has managed to delay his criminal trial in Washington, D.C. with dumb stalling tactics and really bad legal arguments. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts and the law for Slate. And I actually want to pause for a moment to uncharacteristically thank those of you who just signed up as Slate Plus members last week. Uh, We see you and we are really grateful that you see us too. So in last week's two shows, we dove pretty deep into the law of Trump as it intersects with the Supreme Court. In a pair of cases, the aforementioned appeal of blanket immunity claim in the January 6th prosecution that's being tried in the District of Columbia. And in a second case out of the Colorado Supreme Court about whether the 14th Amendment might keep the former president, who is known in his legal filings merely as the president, off the ballot. In that state. Both cases were and are dogged by the unshakable truth that one of the nine justices, hearing both appeals, is married to a person who believed on January 6th and still evidently believes today that the 2020 presidential election was in fact stolen. Is also the justice who did recuse himself in an October appeal involving the role of his former clerk. John Eastman in the events of January 6th and the insurrection, but Clarence Thomas is seemingly not recusing from the two cases affecting his wife. So we are going to talk to Alex Aronson. He's co-founder and executive director of Court Accountability. It's a newish group working to goose the inadequate political response to the recent wave of judicial corruption scandals, and also anti-democratic attacks on American freedoms from the courts. First on today's show, we're going to catch up with Law of Trump correspondent Jeremy Stahl on the rubbernecking around Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's love life. Jeremy is also going to be joining us in our Slate plus segment for our subscribers with an update on the morass of other Trump legal developments in Manhattan and also Manhattan and the District of Columbia and in the Supreme Court this past week. If you are not a Slate Plus member, head on over to slate.com slash amicus plus for details on how to listen. So, Jeremy Stahl covers all of our Trump law cases for us, which means that as of this taping on Friday, he is on top of four, five, six, Jeremy, I don't know, cases swirling around uh, like King Kong, just batting them away. Uh, welcome back, Jeremy. You covered the Fani Willis hearing on Thursday and wrote it up for Slate.
1: It was a spectacular and dramatic spectacle, and I don't think it went particularly well for Fonnie Willis. It was a sight to behold. We'll get into it. It was crazy pants or bonkers world. I can't remember your preferred legal term for all of this stuff.
0: Oh, I think crazy pants and bonkers are actually in Black's uh, Dictionary right next to each other. I think you're good. Um, so I- I'm just going to confess, I'm slightly a skeptic. The standard for removing the full- County DA is very high, as you noted in your piece. They're going to have to prove that she benefited personally from prosecuting Trump and his confederates or can reasonably be seen to have done so in a way that would prejudice the case against Trump. How does picking through her love life and finances in a affair that kind of mirrors what feels to me like something white men have been doing on complicated issues? Years long trials for centuries uh, rise to the standard <laughs> of really being a conflict, other than, oh, what looks to me just like a lot of misogyny and racism and Perian interest on parade.
1: So that standard may be her saving grace and maybe the prosecution's saving grace. That standard is high. Trump's defense team and the defense team that put this relationship out into the public will have to show that her relationship with this basically consulting special prosecutor that her office hired, Nathan Wade, actually was you know, part of the reason to prosecute these people. And essentially, it was about funneling money to him that would then be spent on her on Lavis vacations. It's all very ornate and not really how things are done and not really the takeaway I would have from the hearing. At the same time, the failure to disclose this initially, the failure to let anyone know, let her office know, is in violation of local and specific to her office, ethical rules and statements she made and that sort of thing. That was not the subject of the hearing. In fact, Judge Scott McAfee very explicitly said, we're not going to get into whether or not this was ethical or an ethical violation or something that she shouldn't have done. That's not the standard here. The standard here is whether or not there was some sort of financial benefit or appearance of financial benefit that could be said to go to the detriment and prejudice the defendants. And that is a much harder case to prove. I agree. I agree with that. In a case of these stakes and of this importance where the question is whether or not Donald Trump tried to steal the election in Georgia and the certainty that there would be blowback, the certainty that there would be uh, a high, high level of interest in the highest possible ethical standards for the prosecution team itself. To me, this is a spectacular cell phone. And this is something that really, really puts this prosecution at risk Despite that super high standard, because there is a world in which the judge in this case, he's a federal society judge, he's a Republican appointed judge. He has conducted himself super, super well this entire time. There is a chance he sees this as too big of a headache and uses all of this drama as an excuse to basically punt it. And at at that point, the way that disqualification works in Georgia is that there may be no (laughs) trial against (laughs) the defendants in this case, which would be, you know, a a tragedy.
0: Yeah, I think you're making the point that you and I've been talking about forever, which is this is the timing problem. Uh, This pushes a trial that already was going to be late to start in terms of what we need to have happen, uh, possibly indefinitely, possibly irreparably. And the other point you made in your piece with Mark is that Fonnie Willis comes out swinging, Uh, that she came out on Thursday, I think surprising no one as much as herself, but all of us just furious and testified in a way that, made her seem like she was prosecuting folks who were cross-examining her, and she was mad.
1: She was mad, and the case can be very fairly made that she has the right to be mad, that this is an intrusion into her private life, that there is a basis in sexism and misogyny and racism for all these attacks on her, including and up to this one, At the same time, I would make the case that she made some serious mistakes here, and she had no one to blame but herself for being up on that stand. And to me, what the response felt like, what the uh, witness performance felt like, was that Fani has an election in several months. Her term ends at the end of this year. So to me, this felt like a performance for an electorate, a local electorate, rather than a performance for a judge. And to be honest, she should have been composing herself in a way that would have appealed to Judge Scott McAfee, which is exactly what Nathan Wade did. Nathan Wade was very respectful, if a little bit terse and courteous and responsive in this intrusion into his private life, into this set of questioning. And his composure, I would say, was more in line with courtroom decorum than what Fonnie Willis's was. Of course, he's not running for an election in several months, it is to her detriment to have performed that way in this courtroom. And her audience was that judge, and it should not be the electorate in a situation like this.
0: And Jeremy, you started to say this, but what are the options ahead? What are the choices that Judge McAfee is going to have to wrestle with as he thinks about what it is that he has to do, and how in turn does that affect the timing of this massive sprawling, what would have been a huge, huge, momentous case? What are the different options for how that goes forward?
1: It's important first to note, I think, that this is a very solid prosecution. Fonnie Willis brought a very strong case. She's already won, and she's the first prosecutor, I think, in these big Trump cases to have won multiple plea deals with Trump's co-defendants, big co-defendants, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbrough, others, Jenna Ellis, who have confessed essentially to some of the smaller charges in exchange for their testimony. These were big, important wins for the case against Donald Trump and the case that Donald Trump committed crime to try to steal an election. So she's accomplished that already. And the possibilities of this case was that she would do more of that, right? That was the promise of this case. So that's important to lay those stakes on the table, I think. To answer your question, it's a very convoluted and difficult road if Judge McAfee decides to disqualify Fonnie Wilson. And and I think he can do a number of things. I think he can say, you know what, this is not a conflict of interest that actually prejudices the defendants in any way, because it really is hard to see how this specific set of facts does go to the detriment of these defendants, although I suppose a case could be made for that. So he could say, no, we're not going to disqualify. He could say, Nathan Wade, I think you should no longer be part of this prosecution team. He could say the entire office is disqualified. And it's this last option where things get really complex and difficult. If he does that, this decision about who becomes the new prosecutor, if there is a new prosecutor, goes to this one official that has power over this in the state of Georgia. And this has already happened once in this series of cases. Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, Fannie Willis was investigating him as part of this scheme to keep Trump in power during the 2020 election – and she had done a fundraiser or something like that for one of Burt Jones's opponents. The judge in that case said that this was a conflict of interest that prejudiced the potential defendant, Burt Jones, and that DA Willis was disqualified. That disqualification then got kicked up to this council that is supposed to determine these things. And the council still has not, this was years, more than a year ago, the council has still not appointed a new prosecutor in that case. So... The fact of the matter is that this could put the case on hold indefinitely. And even if a new prosecutor is selected, there is no guarantee that the prosecutor will decide to go forward with the case. Uh, So right now, things are very much up in, in the air in a way that is not looking great.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It sort of makes me think of all the times that we talk about judicial ethics and the Supreme Court, particularly where we insist that judges and justices act impeccably. Uh, and boy, we learned whether we wanted to or not uh, on Thursday, just a whole lot about how relationships work and what sexism is, and who makes sandwiches in the relationship, and travel to tattoo parlors around the world. Like, wow. It just, the whole, whole thing feels like a kind of desperate black eye to the way we think about um, how we would like to see the legal system perform.
1: Dahlia, this raises a question for me, actually, because I know about your own previous professional experience, you uh, you were actually a divorce lawyer in a past life. And a lot of this stems from some divorce proceedings between Nathan Wade and his soon-to-be ex-wife. A lot of the revelations around the relationship between D.A. Willis and Nathan Wade stem from that. And a lot of the details that were explored in this and sort of also at sometimes evaded in this hearing had to do with the, the complexity of that situation, the complexity of a divorce, the complexity of uh, relationships during a period of separation or when a marriage is irrevocably broken. Nathan Wade said his marriage was broken in 2015, so that left him free to engage in romantic relationships and all these things. They were staying together for the kids. So there's just so much messiness and complexity of actual personal relationships going on here. And you have some knowledge and experience of how that looks like from the perspective of a lawyer trying to sort through these things. I'm curious what you would say about all of this.
0: Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts on Thursday about this. I always have to remind myself that, you know, the Michael Newdow Pledge of Allegiance case that made its way All the way up to the Supreme Court, where Michael Newdow famously did not want his daughter to have to say the pledge and say the words under God, and he argued it himself at the court, that started (laughs) as a massive dispute between divorcing parents, which is a part of the case that, you know, we, we always forget about. So it's true while I was listening to disgruntled former colleagues, you know, talking about behavior and thinking about you know illness and covid and all of the ways that this is just uh, unhappy families being unhappy in different ways i was a little bit reminded Jeremy of the of the first rule of family law as i was taught it which is that criminal lawyers tend to meet folks that they represent acting their very best, trying to behave really magnificently, and that family lawyers tend to meet pillars of the community behaving really badly. You know, people who in every other context are utterly beyond reproach and, you know, yet there's like stuff stashed under the bed and just horrible misconduct online. And so I think in some sense what you're Poking at, and it's true, is that this is the kind of stuff that probably exists in so many, not just divorces, but just every kind of relationship as it dissolves and begins with someone else. And it's the kind of stuff none of us wants to know about because it always paints everybody in the worst possible light.
1: That answers my question. I'm very grateful for that. Thank you, Dahlia.
0: Jeremy Stahl covers the law of Trump for us at Slate, and Slate Plus listeners are going to get to hear more from Jeremy later on in the show. We're going to come back and talk to him about the Trump criminal trial that looks as though it, A, has a pretty solid March trial date, and B, a judge who is absolutely not there for the former guy's carnival barking antics. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can go to slate.com slash amicus plus to find out how to join our subscription program, and that in turn will help you unlock unlimited reading at slate.com and to access bonus content like my conversations with Jeremy and Mark Joseph Stern. We are going to take a short break now. When we come back, Non-Recusal and the Urgency of Court Reform with Alex Aronson. And now let's circle back to the issue that plagues so many of our listeners. In no other court in the country and probably no other Supreme Court in the world of democratic nations— Would a judge be allowed to participate in a hearing about whether a coup had happened if his wife was both an enthusiastic supporter of that coup and also an active participant in the events of that day? That the spouse of a sitting jurist believes Donald Trump won the 2020 election to this day should, I think, be disqualifying, but it is not. The fact that there seems to be nothing to be done about that, even when there is lots, I think, to be done about that, is the mess we plan to drill down into right now. Alex Aronson is co-founder and executive director of a group called Court Accountability. As former chief counsel and senior counsel to U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, he has long led investigations and oversight and legislative efforts to address special interest influence and judicial abuses of power. Alex, I cannot tell you how much I've been following your work and how desperately I wanted to have you on the podcast this week when so many... Listeners feel just utterly paralyzed by the sense that nothing can be done. So welcome to Amicus.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Dahlia. It is a thrill to be here. I feel like I'm um, talking to Cassandra after the sacking of Troy. What a a treat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, I think. Um, So I wanted to start where last week's show ended which uh involved Noah Bookbinder of Crew and that was the group that brought that Colorado ballot disqualification case and and he suggested toward the end of our interview that it should not fall upon someone who is in fact a party to supreme court litigation to either demand recusals or to enforce the court's own recusal rules and Since justices are not going to enforce their own recusal rules and parties before the court find it very hard to do so uh, publicly and in real time, it feels like it's kind of left to who? To Congress? To us? To, you know, public shaming? How do we fix this problem of (laughs) there are reasons that justices shouldn't be hearing the cases they hear and everyone feels like we're stuck in that world?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point, And I agree with Noah, it should not fall to the parties to have to bring up these arguments. And I think it speaks to kind of a broader cultural problem among the sort of litigating class as they have watched what has happened to this court, particularly since the stacking of the judiciary with Federalist Society judges during the Trump era. You know, they have litigating interests. They have clients who are trying to win their cases before the courts. They're not in a position often to speak plainly about what they see as corruption and conflicts of interest before them. And it really should not fall to them. And and so then the question is, who does it fall to? And currently under our system, it falls to the judge on whose shoulders the conflict sits. And that clearly is not acceptable either. And as this has developed with uh, Justice Thomas sitting apparently on these two cases, Despite this very evident conflict, despite the clear application of several provisions of the federal recusal statute to his situation here, he's not going to do anything about it. Meanwhile, we've got a new... Ethics code at the court that uh, is a lower ethical standard than the the lower courts apply to themselves. We've got Chief Justice Roberts who supervises the Judicial Conference, who has a real role to play here in supervising the entire judiciary and policing these ethical issues at the Supreme Court. And he he has really taken a back seat and led it to his colleagues to make these decisions for themselves. And then the final, I think, body you have to look to is Congress, the people's representatives in the constitutional structure, their most direct constitutional representatives who have uh, really failed to respond to the judicial influence that we've got at the court and have not responded, I think, adequately to the conflicts of interest at play in the Trump cases.
0: So I actually want to follow up right there, Alex, because one of the things that I have sensed in the occasions I've had to sort of casually press this issue with elected representatives is that there's either a sense of I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really understand this issue, or there's nobody pushing me in my constituency to do something about this issue, or... It has ever been thus, and there's not really a a path forward to legislating on this issue. This kind of deep sense, you know, with some exceptions, and we should stop and note that your former boss, Sheldon Whitehouse, has been indefatigable on this issue, but just the sense of kind of learned helplessness in Congress— is sometimes so acute that one feels as though they're being asked to do that which is not even conceivable. Is that unfair of me?
2: I don't think it's unfair, and I think it's a product of decades of a failed judicial strategy, an inability to articulate a politically resonant constitutional vision of a balance of powers between these branches. And in that vacuum, we have seen the aggrandizement of judicial power and the increase of this lack of accountability by the court as it has become the almost singular law and policymaking body of the country. And as it has grown into this incredibly powerful position in our government, the Congress has sort of taken it lying down and has really let its muscles of congressional oversight vis-a-vis the courts and legislation vis-a-vis the courts really atrophy and die. And so when the court does stuff that we all kind of see is blatantly or very clearly wrong or kind of in contrast to the espoused principles or the rule of law as we understand it, we need to be able to turn to Congress to do something about it. And my concern, you know, having spent many years in Congress and working with a lot of the members as we're thinking about this and how to move through what I see as a real judicial supremacy thicket, a lot of it is about sort of getting these muscles, these atrophied muscles back in action and, and strengthened again.
0: I want to ask you about how we're going to do that in a minute, but I also just want to ask you just as a sort of person who thinks hard about judicial ethics and the appearance of impropriety, which is supposed to be, right, the lodestar, do you see any difference? I know I'm harping on Justice Thomas having a conflict because his wife was there that day. But do you see any difference between the Colorado ballot case and the presidential immunity case that the court is now really, at at this moment, about to decide whether they're going to wade into in terms of the appearance that possibly one of the justices should be recusing himself? Or is it the same thing?
2: I don't think the analysis on the recusal statute is exactly identical. I think Uh, you reach the same outcome that clearly justice thomas should be recusing from these cases the insurrection case the colorado versus anderson case i think perhaps more squarely implicates his interests and his potential biases his his very apparent biases vis a vis his wife's interest i think you know the resolution of the legal questions around the definition of insurrection could have perhaps more direct bearing on his wife given her involvement in the stop the steal efforts and the insurrection than the legal question around immunity but i think broadly speaking as we're Considering the question about, you know, recusal and the appearance of impropriety and the existence potentially of actual conflict, given what we know about Ginny Thomas's involvement, given what we've learned, you know, even this week about the thinking of some of the lawyers involved in the Stop the Steal effort, John Eastman and Ken Cheesborough, they were very clearly thinking about how these justices would think about these arguments they were advancing. And Eastman, in particular, he was a Justice Thomas clerk, and he was looked to to provide personal insights on how Justice Thomas was going to respond to this. You know, given these conflicts, given these entanglements between Thomas and the broader MAGA movement, I think it's just not close in terms of whether his impartiality may reasonably be questioned by an impartial observer.
0: So this leads me, I think, to the reason I really wanted to talk to you, because my sense is that you feel as intensely as I do, that while there is kind of like bottomless public frustration for the ways in which the court has conducted itself, you know, part of that being the scandals, the, you know, drip, drip of what we've heard from ProPublica and Politico and The New York Times and other places, you know, The Guardian – and then there is also public frustration at this anti-democratic you know, overturning of precedent and complete and total rejection of <laughs> everything that happened after the New Deal. I guess those two things create deep frustration. And yet it feels to me that the public attention span for the court itself is is pretty narrow. Yes, There's so much other stuff. There's always going to be, you know, the price of gas. There's always going to be Trump's antics. There's always going to be 10 things that push the court down to a story that we cover intensely for the last two weeks in June. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you is whether this intense focus we are having this month on the court, what? You know, it doesn't seem to be taking – Originalism seriously in the Colorado case and what? Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to like slow walk the case in Judge Chutkin's court because there's this completely bogus claim to blanket immunity. It actually, and tell me I'm wrong, it takes attention away from all the other really bad stuff the court's going to do this term. I mean, we've got two abortion cases. We've got this deregulatory juggernaut. We're like closing agencies. And. Suppressing the vote. And none of that gets any attention because these big blockbuster stories about Trump and the insurrection take what little public appetite there is for Supreme Court news. Tell me I'm wrong.
2: I don't think you're wrong. And I think it speaks to why the conservative legal movement, why the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo have invested so much into their judicial policymaking strategy because they recognize that galvanizing public attention to push back on a, you know, legal assault on the American administrative state is a much taller task than mounting a legislative campaign or making other political hay that mainstream media is going to cover. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, at the same time, it's important that the public is paying attention to what the court is doing in this context, particularly as the court advances this very dangerous reactionary agenda, because you know it, it puts the lie to what they are doing in their substantive rulemaking as they pursue their agenda. As you point out, originalism is really on trial in this insurrection case. They may find a, a shortcut to get out of having to resolve those questions, but. All of it, I think, implicates just how much power and control the court has over the most important questions of our times and raises questions about whether that should be
0: the case. So that's a a perfect on-ramp to this thing I want to ask you about that you and I, I think, emailed about a little bit last week, which is there is a difference between – the political branches and the court in terms of kind of the arc of the story. And one of the things that I was kind of horrified to discover is that some of the key medical studies that were cited by Judge Matthew Kazmarek in the Mifepristone case, and that's a case that's about to be heard at the court, those studies were just junk. And they were filed by some of the same group, surprise, that brought the litigation. And last week, because they were junk, they were withdrawn nobody cares. <laughs> this is how science works, right? It self-corrects, gets withdrawn. But it's not at all clear to you or me. I think that this is how the law works. Nobody is going to register or care that there were conclusions about ER visits that were simply based on false, and I think I want to say deliberately false, science that gets cited and then becomes part of the record. And so I think you were starting to say, and I'd love for you to say it in a more fulsome way, Alex, that this is part of the, you know, junk science, amicus brief, industrial complex, the sprawling machine that gets all these bad facts to the court. And then by the time we figure out their bad facts, it's too late to do anything.
2: Yeah, of course. And this really speaks to the broader influence apparatus that my former boss, Senator Whitehouse, really focuses on. It is not the case that the the Federalist Society just, you know, put these judges on the court and the law started getting really bad. What we're living through now is the product of decades of investment in intellectual capital as one of your other former amicus guests, Professor Amanda Hollis-Bruski, has really, I think, cogently written about the investment in these ideas, in doctrines, in fake facts, in the recruitment of falsified plaintiffs, really the concoction of litigation to deliver policy outcomes which is in large part how these politically salient cases have uh, manifested particularly in this in this current era where the cases that the courts resolving and this is complicated even more by the fact that the court can you know choose the cases that it hears taking these cases uh, that are uh, concocted by special interest groups funded by dark money and using them as the foothold to change the law and e- even in this Mifepristone case you can see other evidence of it in Matthew Kazmarek's fo- first footnote in the Mifepristone case he cites Robbie George Robbie George's a professor at Princeton he runs a very influential dark money Center with ties to you know frankly theocratic religious interests very close ally of Leonard Leo and his book embryo is a a book that really plants the constitutional foothold for fetal personhood. So in this one case, you have a citation to now retracted studies that were created by a dark money group that did not disclose its ties to the Susan B. Anthony list that was providing funding for outcome-oriented studies, And you had the insertion of this really radical doctrinal attack on women's rights in this country. And so you can see in this one case, uh, a really, really great example of how they weaponized the law to advance these really extreme outcomes.
0: Let's take a short break. And now we are back with Alex Aronson, Executive Director of Court Accountability. Okay, so all of our listeners are now, as they generally are, at the halfway mark of our show, sobbing quietly into their Saturday morning beer. So now is where I want to give you a chance to sort of explain both, you know, what it is that you are doing at Court Accountability and also, you know, you've sort of made the point many times, and I think it's not shocking, that this is a 40-year effort that you're trying to counter in like a couple of months and years. So talk a little bit about what you're doing and what the map looks like in your view from digging out from the larger sense of just public, we're stuck with it-ness that plagues this entire conversation post-Dobbs.
2: So I came to this work, I was a lawyer. I was a civil rights lawyer at the Justice Department when Donald Trump was elected I was told by his assistant attorney general that we would be implementing campaign promises of the Trump administration, so I quickly polished up my resume and looked for ways to push back against that agenda, and I found myself on the Senate Judiciary Committee working for Senator Whitehouse, who, you know, really because of his focus on climate denial and his, you know, real championing of the climate movement, was attuned to the dark money forces that were really trying to break our government, that had broken the Republican Party in Congress and captured that party, and that we're making real moves on the judiciary. And that had been for decades and was starting to tell these stories. And the stories that we were telling and the evidence we were finding of this corrupting judicial influence, I thought, spoke to a scheme that cut to the heart of American democracy and to everything I care about as an American. And as we were telling the stories, as you were you know, doing your essential coverage, as researchers like Lisa Graves and journalists like Jane Mayer were telling these incredibly important stories on the outside, I felt that the Democratic Party and the broader legal advocacy, sort of liberal legal advocacy ecosystem was not responding with adequate urgency to the scale and alarm that I felt about this threat. And I think it's largely because of some of the stuff we talked about earlier, the sort of uh, the atrophied muscles of pushback when it comes to this court. And that, I think, speaks to a culture of mythology and fawning that we have instilled in this court that you have addressed at length in your writing and on this show that has really been exploited and weaponized by the Federalist Society now that they have controlled the judicial power. And now that we're in this moment, I, I actually have a decent amount of hope. I, th- I think it's fair to feel despondency. It's, it's fair to feel helplessness because, you know, year after year, the court advances new, really terrible reactionary policy outcomes and its substantive, you know, rulemaking. In the democracy context, it's eroding the tools of democratic accountability. And so it's this one-way ratchet and so it feels, and I feel, um, very urgently alarmed about the the state of our democracy and our, our our ability to fight our way out of this judicial supremacy thicket. I think the way out of it comes through a popular movement, through really emboldening ourselves to feel ownership over constitutional power and constitutional meaning, and to stiffen the spines of our representatives in government to see that they have important constitutional power too, to push back on overweening abuse of judicial power and confront judicial corruption.
0: I think one of the things that's really tricky for folks, Alex, is that they're clocking, you know, the travel stories, they're clocking the tuition for the grandnephew stories, they're clocking, you know, Sam Alito <laughs> Going on a plane that he says isn't a plane and taking a fishing trip that he says isn't a fishing trip. And they're clocking all that, but maybe it's hard to connect it directly to either, you know, are there quid pro quo? You know, is this actual corruption? Um, There was a funny piece I just read about how, you know, if we just paid them half a million dollars a year, they wouldn't have to live this way. Um, So can you help? For people who kind of are like, well, that kind of stinks, but I don't know that it takes me further down the road of seeing the problem with the court. What's the connection there?
2: So these issues are intimately connected, and I think one of our you know, failings in observing and disu- in discussing them has been really driving home these connections between the flagrant corruption, the abuse of power, the influence, the efforts to really radically reshape the composition of the court through the infusion of huge dark money, and the outcomes. These reactionary anti-government outcomes to install Christian nationalist theocracy, to attack a woman's right to choose to dismantle the American government. And these are intimately connected. These are the interests of the dark money backers behind the, the travel and luxury schemes and so, by failing to to connect these dots as I, as I fear some of our political leaders have done, as I fear much of the media does you know just by focusing on the travel and luxury that that drives headlines, we are missing the reason for the corruption. We are missing the agenda that that drives it. And one of the reasons I'm so focused on telling the stories of corruption and dark money influence around the courts is because of these connections and because voters respond to this just tangible and self-evident corruption that they see in the court in a way that they have not responded, as we t- discussed earlier, to the sort of substantive lawmaking in the say, for example, the administrative law context. In this m- moment, I believe we have an incredibly important opportunity to tell stories about what has happened to the court as a major threat to national democracy, American democracy, much in the way that the January Sixth Committee told the story of Stop the Steal and the MAGA movement and their threat to democracy, which I think is a different but also very much related movement. And so, in this moment, by you know training our focus on the corruption, by advancing common sense and deeply popular. Court reforms, such as a, just a simple enforceable code of conduct on this court, we can start to show people and start to show Congress and the members of Congress who have a real important constitutional role to play here in pushing back against this threat, that we actually are empowered, that we have things that we can do to improve our situation here. And in those early steps, right, say we're able to build a movement that passes real ethics reform to improve what John Roberts kind of threw at us early last year, then we can start to point to some successes that will empower us further to to actually constrain the court to think about the nature of judicial power and who gets to decide the kind of country we get to live in
0: so i think you you've just answered my next question which is you know when chief justice roberts threw the kind of choose your own ending judicial ethics reform stuff at us and said but you know we're going to we're going to just enforce it ourselves as we have always done The two ways of looking at that were, oh, the court blink, right? Like we pushed them and shamed them and they put forth something. It wasn't what you want it or I want it, but it shows they're responsive. I think that's Steve Vladek's answer to, hey, they're not doing all this stuff on the shadow docket the way they were. You know, They're being a little more careful. And so I think that there's two ways to tell the story. One is that they are the all-powerful Oz, and we continue to think we can't touch them. The other is, actually, they're trainable. I think you're saying the latter is the story you want to tell and you want people to be a part of that, <laughs> the smashing the cord on the nose with the rolled up newspaper because they can change.
2: I think it's an important story, but I think it's also a partial story. I think a lot of the ways that they move in response to public pressure are to maintain their own public perception and public Credibility. So as advocates and voters start to notice uh, things that are going wrong at the court, the lack of ethics codes, the lack of transparency that Steve has really helpfully pointed out, they start to moderate because they understand that the criticism is unhelpful for them as they want to maintain that legitimacy and credibility to advance an agenda which is what i believe this majority really wants to do. so i think it's really a balance for them. and and so i think on some level yes public pressure is absolutely essential and can improve things at the court but when it comes to their true agenda the things that the billionaires put them on the the court to advance I don't think they're all that movable there. And so there, I think that's where Congress comes in. And we really need to get creative and ambitious in terms of the kind of reforms we're investing in to constrain what this court is going to do, notwithstanding public pressure.
0: So, Alex, I think that you and I have the same... Ultimate problem, which is the legitimacy problem that neither you nor I have any interest in burning down the court and having, you know, the next election resolved by street fighting. And that legitimacy problem is the thing that slightly hamstrung the blue ribbon commission that was put together to assess structural court reform. It's the thing that I think makes us kind of a little afraid of the finish line because we don't know how to navigate. And this is, again, the Merrick Garland problem, right? It's the DOJ problem of how do you simultaneously preserve the legitimacy of an institution that the other side is perfectly happy to blow up? and criticize and reform in ways that actually would preserve that legitimacy. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which your efforts try to balance those two things that really often pull in very different directions.
2: Sure. You know, I'm I'm definitely not trying to disrupt the legitimacy of the court. I I you know, I'm a I was at the justice department. I believe strongly in the courts and the rule of law and the importance of the Supreme Court. I just want it to be a court. You know, frankly, I, and I think it's losing its legitimacy because it is not acting as one. When I was working in the Senate, I had a conversation with uh counsel for uh, one of my, you know, a Republican member on the Senate Judiciary Committee and he approached me after one of our presentations on dark money influence in the court and he said, "Don't you think this is a little dangerous what you're doing?" stripping away the fiction about what this court is? And I said, no, no, I don't think that's dangerous. I think preserving that fiction is what's dangerous. And so that's what I'm about, Uh, you know, trying to tell these stories so that people don't, you know, continue to get suckered by this fiction. And I'm glad you brought up kind of institutionalism, because I think it's sort of at the heart of how we are wrestling with this moment in the post-Trump era, where Republicans and Donald Trump really destroyed many of the previously shared norms that kind of held us together despite our policy differences. And I think many of our impulses, the mainstream media impulses, the Democratic Party's impulses in the post-Trump era have been to sort of try to magically wave a wand and bring these norms back to life. And that's just not how norms work. you know, norms don't work when only one side abides by them. And at this point, I think we have learned that, you know, when, when it comes to this judiciary, it's about power and outcomes. And so unless we're willing to get realistic about that, I don't think we have much of a way out of this. And so we need to get real about what messages we're sending when we kind of resort to those, you know, pure institutionalist impulses. And it's not to say I'm not an institutionalist. I believe in these institutions and I have hope that this court will be an institutional bulwark against Trump in the future, perhaps. At the same time, it is very much a part of the authoritarian threat that we are facing. And if we have any hope of preserving our democracy and advancing the vision of the world that I think you and I and many of your listeners share, I think we have to get serious about confronting judicial power.
0: So in our remaining time, I'm going to ask you in the most pragmatic and non-sort of inchoate way, often I am buttonhole at coffee shops or after I give a talk by people who are maddened by the court, either because of Dobbs, or because of guns or because of the environment or because of affirmative action or because of uh, loan relief, and want me to tell them the thing to do. And since it is your job To tell people what is the thing to do, I would love for you to, in like short, crisp, declarative sentences, tell people, because I got to tell you, when I start talking about structural court reform, like they're already asleep in their coffee cups, what is the answer to a tangible action step going into an end of term that I think is going to be pretty bad uh, that they can do instead of just be rageful and powerless and frustrated.
2: I don't think we have time to wage a 50-year, you know, progressive legal movement, as it were, but there's no quick fix. And I think the path out of this lies in our hands, in the power of movement mobilization. And I draw from anti-authoritarian strategy, looking to how other countries have defeated authoritarian threats, which is what I think we're dealing with in the form of both Donald Trump and the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary and the billionaires that control it. And the way to get through an authoritarian threat is to build a broad cross ideological coalition. To find common ground with as many people as we can around the truths that we are identifying uh, in the course of our observation of American politics and the American judiciary in the modern era. And so, yes, it's true. Like none of these court reforms are politically possible in any, you know, near term future. But Only by sort of investing in a politics around this stuff, much in the way that the right did around abortion, frankly, and overturning Roe, only by doing that will we be able to create the political capital we will need to pass the types of reforms that can get us out of this very dangerous judicial supremacy thicket that, again, we are stuck in. But, you know, there's there's real... Movement here. I think the explosion of scandal and public interest in corruption, which you know is a, an issue that polls incredibly highly across ideologies and is a bipartisan issue, has provoked a real popular resistance. We've seen an incredible um, drop in public faith in the court. And again, I don't think it's a good thing that. Public faith in the court is low, but I think it's a sign that people are ready to do something here. And you've seen the emergence of new movements. I'll I'll point to a really important ally of mine, United for Democracy, a a broad cross-ideological movement of labor groups and environmental groups and gun activists, local and state level, national, to build a real movement to empower our representatives in government to speak for us, to fight for us, to move towards those reforms that will save us.
0: Alex Aronson is co-founder and executive director of Court Accountability. He was former chief counsel and senior counsel to U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and he is really, I think, at the forefront of... A really new and urgent effort to to take seriously not just what's happening at the court, but to take seriously what we can do about it. Alex, we really needed you this week. We were feeling a little a little low, but thank you so so much both for your work and for your time.
2: I appreciate you so much, Dahlia.
0: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash podcast. Sarah Burningham is Amicus's senior producer. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor, and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, do try to hang on in there.